the ninth chapter. Once again, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Stand if you are able. John chapter 9, verse 35. Let us hear God's Word. Most assuredly, I say, I'm sorry, off a spot. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son? And I'm going to change the word here as it should be, the Son of Man. He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. Let us pray. Father, we pray your blessing on that which you have appointed, the preaching of your word. We pray that by the working of your spirit, that the word would be sounded forth with clarity and in truth, and that Christ would be lifted up before us. We pray, God, that you would accomplish your work with the word, whether we need correction or even rebuke or training in righteousness, Lord, we pray that you would equip us all to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. For the previous four Lord's Days, we've been telling the story of Jesus healing the man more blind. We've been in the chapter 9, and that's what the entirety of the chapter is about. John told us how Jesus made clay with the soil in his spit and anointed the eyes of this man born blind. And then he sent him to wash in the pool of Siloam. You'll remember that Jesus sent, he being the sent one, Jesus being the sent one, sends the blind man to the pool called Sent. Well, John, as an eyewitness of these events, saw what happened. He heard these things. That man went in obedience to Christ. He washed his eyes and came away seeing, and no doubt with great rejoicing. John would have interviewed the man, about those things that took place. He would have also interviewed other witnesses around him. He would have heard it from their perspective. This makes John's account faithful and true. He was an eyewitness of these things. But there's something more, something more important. John is one of the holy men of old that the Holy Spirit moved along to write these things. So God, speaking through men, gave us the scriptures. There, God breathed, inspired from above. Remember how Peter also an eyewitness of many things. In the opening of, I believe it's Second Peter 2, he talks about how he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw these things and he can bear witness to them, but he says, we, including himself, he says, we have a more faithful witness, the Word of God. Peter, even though he would recount John, though he would recount from his own experience, the best of his ability, these men testify that we have a more faithful witness in the Word of God. And God has preserved that for us. So that what we have before us, what we've been hearing from John 9, is a faithful witness of what happened. I want you to turn with me to 1 John 1. I don't usually go to a text in an introduction, but I think it's important on this regard to see what John himself says. 1 John 1 sounds similar to the opening of his gospel. Notice what John says, this inspired author Speaking of being a witness, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, 
the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things are we write to you that your joy may be full. You see, John, very mindful that it's being led along by the Holy Spirit, but he reminds us he was there. Notice he says, we've seen with our eyes, we've heard, and we've handled with our hands. There was an intimacy and a closeness between the disciples in Christ. We have followed along in this account that John has written in chapter 9 as the blind man went in obedience to Jesus. He washed his eyes. He regained, or he gained his sight, having never seen. And we've tried to imagine the joy and the overflow that would have been in his heart at that moment when he could see. What a marvelous, marvelous miracle. That joy would have spilled out of him and to those who were around him as he went back, no doubt encountering those who knew him, who had seen him, begging down through the years, and now he has seen. But we've also seen that there were those in the text who had their eyesight, and they were not only unimpressed, but they decided to turn on this man whom Jesus had healed, and they badgered and bullied and persecuted him. We noted in one of the sermons from this chapter, it's so in the world today. There will always be those who are ready to rejoice over what God has done within sinners, but there will also be those who who reject him and behave wickedly even against the Lord's own people. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus came for the man, and he, that man, beheld his healer and discovered that he was God. We're going to use three main headings, faith rewarded, seeing Jesus, confession and worship, and a solemn warning as the chapter concludes. A warning not unlike that which we've seen in Isaiah. So begin with a faith rewarded or seeing Jesus. Last week in our text, we concluded with verse 34 where we are told they threw him out. And you remember back in verse 22 that this is what his parents were concerned about. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, that is Jesus, was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And thus, the Pharisees threw this man out. So it was a real threat. What For what? For confessing that Jesus is the Christ. That's what he was thrown out for. Jesus healed that man, but he had a reason. And rightly, uh, rightly, the man understood that Jesus was not a sinner, as the Pharisees were maintaining. He declared that he counted Jesus as a prophet. You remember as we progressed, this is the way it went. He, He counted Jesus to be a prophet and not a sinner. And he considered that Jesus was a worshiper of God, who did God's will. So he's growing in his understanding. He's related to what's happened. He has, uh, as I said, taken that uncommon gift of common sense, and he has worked out in his mind that these things must be true. But that was all, all that was too much for the self-righteous Pharisees, the religious rulers. In verse 35, we hear a foreshadowing of what the next chapter will be about. Where Jesus declares, I am the shepherd. Look again at the text. Jesus heard they had cast him out. And when he had found him. So how did he find him? Well, he went searching for him. 
He went searching for one of his lost sheep, Jesus being faithful. He was not there when these things events, but he's heard of them. The people are talking. The word travels from mouth to mouth. And Jesus hearing they'd put him out, he went and sought the man out. Notice that John says that Jesus heard what had been happened. People had been talking about it. The Pharisees are very pleased with themselves, and yet their conduct, their, their behavior, their treatment of this man has traveled through the people into the surrounding region. Then having found the man, Jesus asked him a question. This is not a conversation starter, really. He says, do you believe in the Son of God? That's where he begins. There's no uh, preliminary work because Jesus knows that the Holy Spirit has already done that work. But this question that Jesus puts to that man is the most critical question of that man's life. And I would say it's the most critical question for each of us as well. Verse 35 again, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus places an emphasis in the question. There's, you know, like in our English sentence structure, if you're learning grammar, children, you know that there's an order. You have the, this person, the subject, uh, the verb, the noun. There's action taking place. And that's in Greek, because the sentences are a little different than that, but there's a, a normal structure. And what happens when Jesus speaks, the first word he says is, you do believe, as a question. He puts the emphasis on the you. So we might say that the, the emphasis is such that he is saying, do you, emphasizing you, believe in the Son of Man? That is, do you, like a true disciple, believe? And not like the multitudes of the Jews. Remember how many times we've heard there were the Jews, the multitudes, they believed in Jesus. We saw they believed he was a miracle worker and that uh, you know, he was one to provide bread. They've had all these beliefs. But Jesus is asking, do you believe that he is the Son of Man? He's asking if he has true saving faith. Do you trust the Son of Man with your whole life? Do you rely on the Son of Man as for life and death? Even as we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism number one, that our only hope in life is death, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's worthy to notice that Jesus does not say the Son of God. He does not say, do you believe in the Christ? Now, if you have um, the New King James, you, you have the word God with a footnote, man. Um, and the best texts, the earliest texts, have that. The New King James is translated from the critical text, which I find it's interesting that they chose to place God there because the, the best manuscripts and the earliest manuscripts have the Son of Man. And in John's Gospel, this is a, an interesting point. Jesus is inviting this man to put all his trust in the one who is the revelation of the Father to man. He has come into the world as a Son of Man. And the Jews would have known this language to their ears because it was Daniel speaking of this one who would come, and he refers to him as the Son of Man. It was a title that he used. And if you look at the four Gospels, excuse me, the four Gospels, Jesus most ordinarily refers to himself by this title, the Son of Man. He's the God-Man. He's the second Adam. He has come to fulfill what the first Adam failed to do, and he identifies with man. Remember, as John opened this Gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the light of men was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We've seen that play out in the very last this chapter, that those who are in darkness do not comprehend who Christ is, even as he continually tells them. Why don't you look back at John chapter 9, in verse 3. 
Remember, this is how John sets up this whole episode of the healing of the blind man. Uh, the disciples and Jesus are passing by. They see a man blind from birth. And the disciples, they, they assume wrongly that either the man has sinned or his parents have sinned, and therefore the man is blind. And Jesus says, no, neither this man nor his parents have sinned, but, the works, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This account is about Jesus as the light of the world. And what has he done? A man who has lived his life in darkness, Jesus is the light of the world, has given him eyesight, physical eyesight to see the world, but he's also given him a new heart. The Holy Spirit has worked within him to give him spiritual sight as well. We have seen, though, even though this man has been bullied and harassed by the Pharisees, he did not shrink back. How easy is it to wither under such persecution as this man faced? It's easy to be quiet or to walk away or to change the topic, but he presses on. It's quite remarkable that as we went through the text, we saw him becoming more confident and bolder as the Jews pressed him. For the Spirit had regenerated this man, who regenerated this man, gave him his eyesight, has given him a new heart. He's regenerated the heart of a sinner so that he believes, unlike the Pharisees who have all their theological knowledge, and yet they are blind. You might object that this man doesn't know enough to have faith in Christ. He hasn't had this experience that we read in verse 35 when Jesus comes and then talks to him. And he says, you've seen him. He's talking with you now that Jesus might, has not done enough that this man could have faith in him. But we must understand what the scripture reveals. Moments ago, we saw God put his sign and seal of the covenant on two very young boys. Their understanding is very limited. And yet we prayed that God would move within their hearts by his spirit and give them a new heart even now. Is it necessary for us to do something before the Holy Spirit can work? Remember, we believe from the scriptures that elect infants dying in their infancy do go to heaven. John, was, uh, John records that Jesus told Nicodemus that the Holy Spirit moves where he will. God is not restrained by men. Ordinarily, we are convicted and converted under the word of God. But we don't have anything to do with it, do we? God, the Holy Spirit, works to regenerate. And then we come along. We're at different points in our understanding. And we move along as the Holy Spirit brings us along. And we grow in our understanding. This man was converted when God, uh, the Son, opened his eyesight. He gave him a new heart, the Holy Spirit working on him. And that's why he was able to stand in the withering uh, assault of the Pharisees against him. The Holy Spirit sustaining him, giving him words to speak. He who gave him faith to believe also enabled him to walk by faith in that moment. And he's been walking by faith and not by sight. He has yet to see Jesus with his eyes. Remember, that's what Jesus told Nicodemus. The Holy Spirit moves where he will. You must be born of the Spirit. You must be born again. You must be born from above, emphasizing that it's all a work of God. It's all a work of grace. And we've seen the strong evidence of this man walking by faith. But now, in God's timing, his faith is rewarded. He is seeing Jesus, but he doesn't know that's who it is. Jesus found him. He said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? 
Now, it's reasonable to think he may have recognized the voice that he heard uh, maybe a couple days ago when he was sent to wash. Maybe not. It was a brief encounter. There would have been a crowd, but sure there would have been something familiar about him. But what happens next is Jesus tells him, he says, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. The last time he stood before Jesus, this man could not see him. He had never seen anything in his life. That is really impossible for us to grasp. We've had sight throughout our, our whole life. Children, I don't know if you've ever played a game where you try to walk around in the house with your eyes shut. Your parents, not playing a game, sometimes walk around in the house when it's dark trying to get to you in the night, and they know how to have stories about stubbed toes and banged shins. It's difficult to walk without sight, and this is all this man has known. And so he, he doesn't have any idea. This man who's now speaking, he's never seen him. He's never beheld him with his eye. And he's heard, who? Who is Christ? He's the God-man. He is the Word. He is the living Word, as John introduced him in the opening of his, his gospel. He's God come in the flesh. The Word made flesh. This man has heard the Word. And so, again, to encourage us to understand that this man was converted, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This man has heard, literally heard, the word of God speak. He lacks understanding. He's growing in his understanding. The Holy Spirit's even bringing him along in his understanding as he goes from, well, he's a prophet, to being convinced that he's a man sent from God and even says that he must not have sinned because God does not hear sinners, and yet God has heard this man and he has opened my eyes by his action. Faith comes by hearing. What moment, what a moment that this man had faith to go and wash. Just like Naaman, remember Naaman, the Syrian who was leprous, came seeking out Elisha because of his servant girl, a slave from the Israelites, told her mistress, there's a prophet in Israel. He can heal Naaman. So Naaman goes, and, and Elisha commands him to go wash in the Jordan. And Naaman complains. He says, don't we have cleaner uh, rivers in my homeland? And his servants prevail upon him. He says, you know, if he'd ask you to do something great, when you do, it's a simple task. Just go and dip yourself seven times, like he said. And when he came up from the waters of the Jordan the seventh time, his flesh that had been leprous, being eaten away and falling off, was suddenly like that of a child's, is what the scripture tells us. He received more than physical healing at that point. That man, too, was worked upon by the Holy Spirit. And he went home with faith. You see that as he has this conversation with Elisha about God recognizing, though he may take his master, the king, and help him to bend down before the gods that the king worships. He said, I'm not doing that. And he wanted to take soil home from him, from Israel, that he might have a place that he would kneel and worship the God of heaven. He received something far more valuable than having his leprosy removed. But think about that. Naaman with leprosy. Leprosy is a picture of what sin is in our body. It is pervasive. It's all throughout and within, and it's corrupting. It's vile and festering. And yet Jesus heals leprosy to teach us with a picture that we can see that he can heal sinners and make them whole. Blindness is also a picture of sin. And Jesus alone is able to take away our blindness. So Naaman went home as a worshiper of God, even as this man came back from receiving his sight, having received spiritual sight, and thus he's able to have the exchange that he does with the Pharisees. What a moment. 
What a moment for that man. Jesus reveals himself to him. He is asking him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe? You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. What a moment to see Jesus. My brothers and sisters, we too shall see Jesus. But right now, we walk by faith and not by sight. We have faith that the Holy Spirit has given us, whereby we are united to Christ, and all his benefits become ours by union with Christ. Justification, adoption, sanctification, and ultimately glorification. We will see Jesus when he comes again. We shall see him with our eyes. And what a great reward. That's when faith will be rewarded with the sight of Christ. And faith will no longer be necessary because we will see that which we hope for, that which we long for. We will see him as he is, as the scripture says, and we shall be like him. That is to say, we will be free from sin. Now, if I was a Baptist preacher, I'd expect an amen right there. But I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian minister, but amens are okay. Isn't that a glorious truth? When we see Jesus, we shall be free from sin. As you've heard me say, you know, if, if you walk long with the Lord and you've been engaged in the battle against sin and trying to grow in holiness and obedience to Christ, That is a glorious truth, free from sin, to sin no more. And not only that, not to be able to sin ever again. What a glorious promise in Christ. Sisters and brothers, walk by faith until he comes again. The world will hate us, and they will bully us and persecute us. But God is working all things together for our good and for his glory. On that day when Jesus comes again, Not all will be rejoicing. But indeed, those who are in Christ, we will be rejoicing. Those who have rejected Christ, they will see him as a judge. We will see him as our gracious king and redeemer, our savior, our other brother, the head of the church, and all those many, many other uh, ways that Christ is pictured to us in the scripture. We'll see him as our high priest. As Jesus Speaking to the Pharisees on another occasion in Mark's Gospel 1462, he says to the Pharisees on that occasion, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And for them in that context, he makes it clear, and that will be a matter of judgment for them. Let us rejoice that while Jesus tarries, he's still calling men, women, boys, and girls out of sin and iniquity to himself by his word and spirit. Secondly, we want to consider confession and worship. Hear the marvelous words that Jesus spoke to that man again in verse 37. You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, you can imagine just immediately, he breaks forth, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The word used, translated for worship there is he fell on his face. He did obsessions before him. He worshiped this one who has addressed him. He recognizes who he is. He's already been considered the fact that this one must be God. He owns him as God. He sees him as God, God in the flesh, and he bows and he worships. Here's the one who has given him his sight. When he was last before him, he could see nothing. He would have felt the hands of Jesus packing his eyes with the clay. He would have heard his words sending him to the pool called sent to go on to wash himself and to come up seen. But more importantly than that, here's the one who's given him a new heart, who's given him new life. You can go through life with eyesight and still be condemned in hell. You can have leprosy taken away from you, and that would be a glorious thing in both cases. 
But the most glorious thing of all is for God to work in you and to give you a new heart, to take you out of darkness and to bring, him in, bring you into his light, to give you new life in Christ, to change your eternal destination, to be appointed in Christ to spend all eternity with God in heaven. This is what the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God, came into the world to do. Children, what is the proper response before Jesus? Children, I think you understand if you were to see Jesus, what would be your proper response? Indeed, you'd be compelled to fall down and worship him, right? And that's what this man does. And this is more than just respect. The man is giving religious worship. He's recognizing him as God, as he is announced to him. I am he, the son of man, and it is he who is talking with you. Uh, The word that's used here for worship, Luke uses when he tells us about Peter finally arriving at Cornelius' household. You remember Cornelius from Caesarea. He has a a vision from an angel, and he's told to send for Peter, who's in Joppa. He sends his servants. They find him. Days have elapsed. They come back. Peter comes into the house, and Cornelius falls down and worships him. Same word. And what does Peter do? Peter lifted the man up, saying, Stand up. I myself am also a man. What that man, Cornelius, was doing and was not appropriate to be done unto men. But what this man's doing before Christ is not only appropriate, it's required. Jesus doesn't lift him up. He doesn't say, stop that, don't do that. He tells, he he receives his worship from him. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, these familiar words, Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, the word is slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he hung himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Christ did, so that we could be saved. He did that out of obedience to the Father. Even as we've seen in John again and again, Jesus says, I only do what I hear, what I see my Father doing. I only say what I hear my Father say. Jesus was obedient to the Father to the point of death. As the Son of God, the second Adam, the Son of Man, he obeyed the Father in his work of redemption. And Paul continues on, therefore, because of this, as a result of this, because this was right and righteous, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Those that are in the earth, on the earth, those that are under the earth, those that are in the heaven, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This man who had formerly been blind was in sight. What's his response? It's the only appropriate response to worship Jesus. But my friends, if you have been given a new heart, if God has sent forth his Holy Spirit in you to transform your heart, you have received something far greater than physical eyesight. As great a gift as that is, you have received a new heart. And our response should be joy. Our heart's overflowing with worship, confessing with gratitude that Jesus Christ is Lord. Give me just a second. On that great day, that will be our response to worship Jesus when we see him as he is. But others will be compelled to grovel in the dust. Indeed, they will bend the knee before Christ in fear and trembling. This is why David says, Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed. You judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. 
and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. (coughs) Consider what David says. If kings are called to be wise and kiss the son, how much more us mere men and women, girls and boys of low position, that we should bow before Christ and confess him as Lord. Let's just consider that by way of application. When we gather for worship, and we hear the word faithfully preached from the scriptures, we hear the voice of Jesus. That's what Paul's point in Romans, 4, Romans 10 is. We, faith comes by hearing. And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they hear him, he says. Indeed, we hear Christ from the word. We come week by week, and Jesus is speaking to us, his people. He's faithfully feeding us upon his word with bread from heaven. And week by week, Jesus is calling sinners to himself. Oh, you may hear the word of the preacher declaring that message, to come to Christ, to repent, and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But this is Christ calling sinners to himself. Come, he says, and be free from your burden of sin. Isn't it interesting? Jesus does not require anything of us. He didn't say, kind of get your act together. You need to take care of those things over there. Then I'll receive you. There's nothing we can do. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. What does Jesus say? Believe. We're saved by faith. Faith unites us to Christ. And that faith is a gift from God, the Holy Spirit, who works in us. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable. If that's what you're trying to do, stop it. Stop trying to impress God with your works. And believers, how many times when we have fallen into sin do we delay in running to Christ, thinking we need to take care of this or that, and we want to grovel or beat ourselves up or some other foolish thing? We just come to Christ. Just come to Christ. That's how we came to him to begin with. We remain united to him when we've sinned. Just come to Christ by faith. You see, the Father has given a particular people to his Son. And Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice to save those particular people. Jesus saves sinners apart from anything that we can do. And indeed, there is nothing that we can do to be accepted by the Father. The only thing that is our hope is to be united to Christ by faith. Like the man who Jesus healed, we hear Christ and we believe. He says, come. And we come by faith. Well, the passage ends with a solemn warning. It would be nice if we could just stop there. But it's necessary that we don't stop there. Jesus is mindful. He can see. He's dealing with this man. But he's mindful. There are others around. John reveals that to us. Verse 40. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him, they've been there all along. They're hearing this words, these words. And Jesus has a message as well. Look at verse 39. Jesus goes on, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. My friends, that's a summary. It captures what we've seen in this ninth chapter. The Pharisees responding to Jesus, their self-righteous attitude, full of themselves. They think they see everything clearly. There's them, and then there's those sinners over there. And then there's those sinners over there that... They don't know anything. Even this man, he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. He's ready to acknowledge. I don't know. But right before that, what were the Pharisees said? In the previous verse, verse 24, we know that this man, talking about Jesus, 
is a sinner. And they could not have been more wrong. So let's try to understand what Jesus is saying here. For judgment I have come into the world, this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see may be made blind. The man kneeling before Jesus in worship, his heart is right with God by grace through faith as the Spirit has worked in him. The Pharisees, they're there also, Jesus knowing what is in their heart, so we saw all the way back in John 2.24, knowing what was within the heart of man, he saw their stubbornness and their pride. Jesus' presence, Jesus' message, always provokes two vastly different responses. We welcome and receive him as the Spirit works in us. Others reject him. And that Jesus makes clear they will be punished. Here is a judgment that he speaks of, for this reason he came. But some of you might say, well, what, what, what was it the, back there in chapter 3? Well, turn back with me to chapter 3, and let's look at it more carefully, lest you think there's a conflict here. There's not. In John 3.18, Jesus has been talking about salvation by faith, the working of the Holy Spirit. He says, he who believes in him is not condemned. What has made the difference? Because he's believed in Christ. But he who does not believe is condemned already. As so many think they're not. These Pharisees didn't think they were. They were condemned already. Judgment already abideth on them. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be made clear that they may have been done in God. So there's a trans- transformation. There's a difference between the two. Even as Jesus makes the distinction, there are those who do not see. They shall see. And those who do see, they think they see. They're so full of themselves, so confident in what they know, they don't see. Jesus healed this man as an example. As a picture of this reality, this man was blind. He could not see. But Jesus has acted upon him, and now he can see. The Pharisees, they're very confident they can see, and yet they're blind in their heart. And though they think they see, they're blind and they do not see. And that's what Jesus is talking about, and that is a judgment that falls upon them. The meaning is clear. They think they see, but they're spiritually blind. We've seen that play out. They saw the same one that that man who Jesus healed saw. They saw the light of the world. Remember, back in the opening of the chapter, that Jesus says, verse 5, I am the light of the world. They saw him. They saw this light of the world. And the result of their encounter with Jesus, their hearts have become further hardened. And my friends, that happens in the world today as sinners sit under the preaching of the word week by week, month after month, and Jesus calls them. They don't come, and they scoff, or they mock, or they're disinterested. They're further becoming hardened. Look at verse 40. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words. They're paying attention, at least what he said. They heard these words, and they said to him, Are we blind also? Well, this passage needs some explanation. Again, the, the statement they make begins with the no partible. You know, there, there, there's two ways, I've mentioned this before in the Greek, that you can ask a question, and you can ask it one way, and you're expecting the answer to be yes. 
And you can ask a question with another, in another way, and that's the way it's asked here, expecting the answer to be no. So they're asking this way, are we blind also? Their answer they're expecting is no. The New American Standard captures it well when it translates it. We are not blind too, are we? They anticipate that they're not blind. As a matter of fact, they're sure that they're not blind. And thus they fall into the condemnation of those who see, and yet they shall be blind. So Jesus then answers their question, verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. So here was this blind man. He knew he was blind. He also understood that he was spiritually blind. And now he sees. These men, they say we see, which he's summing up their question. They, think, they say we see, he's therefore your sin remains. My friends, dear listeners, we must see our sinful condition in order to see the need of Christ. And to see the value of Christ. We indeed need the work of the Holy Spirit to work in us that we would see and understand who Christ is. There's another occasion that uh, Luke records in Luke chapter 5. Some of you will remember this from when Pastor Tony preached Luke 5, 31 through 32. Jesus speaking to these same Pharisees. He says, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. See, the Pharisees thought they were well. So they didn't see any need for Jesus a physician. He says, Jesus goes on, I have not come to call the righteous, the sinners to repentance. And in the context, he says, I'm not calling the self-righteous. Those who are so sure, so confident, they're not interested in hearing my voice. And here we see it as well. These men are so confident, they see. Because of their confidence, their boldness and unwillingness to come to Christ, their sin remains. Whereas those who recognize their blindness and come to Jesus for healing shall receive their sight. John chapter 9 began with a blind man who gained his sight and salvation by grace through faith in Christ and not by works. The chapter also began with sinners who saw no need of Jesus. They would not come to him for salvation. They saw no need of Christ's soul-cleansing blood. Rather, they chose to live boasting. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. You recognize those words from Jesus' parable in Luke 18. And in that case, Jesus said the first man went down to his house righteous. That was the one who beat on his breast, wouldn't even lift up his eyes. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He went to his house justified rather than the man, rather than the man who boasted that he was not like other men. My friends, I plead with you to see Jesus as the only one who can save you. Recognize your need. See your blindness, your spiritual uh, poverty and come to Christ. Come to Jesus and live. And indeed, all of you who have humbled yourself in the sight of the Lord and have found how sweet and precious Jesus is, bless God. Give glory to God. Praise God for what he has done. He has done a mighty work in you that no man can do for you, that you cannot do for yourself. God has acted to give you new life. And with him, now say, one thing I know, though I once was blind, Now I see. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this remarkable account, this miracle uh, that is visible and tangible, that we can understand the spiritualities that Jesus speaks of, that John has written about. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in darkness. You have not left us to find our way to heaven, for we never would. For we are enemies, and we hated you, despised you, railed against you. But you, O God, in mercy, have sought us out. 
Even as Jesus sought out the man whom he had healed, the good shepherd sought us out and brought us to the Father through his precious blood, through the working of the Holy Spirit. Father, we bless you and praise you. We humbly acknowledge we have nothing to boast in. The work of salvation is all of God and all of God alone and not a man. We respond only after you have given us a new heart and faith to believe. We bless you, O God, that you have taken away our spiritual blindness and that you have given us eyes to see that one who is is exalted above all others, eyes to see Jesus. Though we see him now with the eye of faith, soon we shall behold him as he is. Till he comes, Lord, keep us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.